Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Job. As a friendly reminder to anybody who is catching this on SoundCloud, you could be catching it live, live streamed to you via Telegram. If you would like the address for that, please send me an email at very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com so I can send you the link and you can join us where not only do you get to hear the lecture on Job live, after that we have a nice fellowship time in which we can discuss what we've read together, and if anybody has any questions or objections or concerns, they can bring it up to me again live and interact with the director of the Very Lutheran Project. That said, if you have a Bible handy, please open it up to the book of Psalms. We are going to read the first Psalm. By now you have maybe have noticed the pattern. Every time Job speaks, we open with James chapter 5. Every time Job's friends speak, we open up with Psalm 1. This is an important way of looking at Job. We let scripture interpret scripture and thus we come to an understanding of why God says Job's friends were wrong while Job was right. Even when he was wrong, he was kind of right. That said, let us read the first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree, planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now moving back just a few pages, we go to Job chapter 42. As a reminder, in the seventh verse, our Lord says, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And now, moving on with this basis, interpreting scripture with scripture, we move on to Job chapter 8. Job has just spoken to his friends in response to Eliphaz the Temanite's first speech. Eliphaz gives us a beautiful example of a law and gospel counseling message, almost like a sermon. And Job speaks of it saying, you're off base. I haven't done anything for this. This is not on account of some sin that I have done. I am a believer. 
and he eventually, over the course of his response to Eliphaz, says, Why can't I just die? God, why do you care so much that I have to be tested? Why do you care so much about me that you're willing to squish me and have me sit here slowly rotting away? But then he gets interrupted. Job chapter 8 begins with Bildad the Shuhite. Starting in verse 1, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? Yet while in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed, and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. He is a lush plant before the sun, and his shoots spread over his garden. His roots entwine and stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have never seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter, and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. And indeed... It is the word of our Lord. What Bildad speaks here in this chapter is not only repeated in other places, in Job, from the mouth of Elihu and from the mouth of God himself, but furthermore, as we will see, some of his words here seem to be referenced directly by our Lord Christ himself. Yet with Bildad... He does make a crucial, critical, horrible error that must be corrected. Verse 2, he says, How long will you say these things in the words of your mouth be a great wind? He's turning some of Job's words against himself. From chapter 7, verse 19, uh, Job says, how long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? I'm just sitting here sucking up air. And Bildad speaks, saying, yeah, you're not only sucking up air until you swallow your spit, you're also blowing it out with these complaining words of yours. Bildad is an impatient man. Have you ever sat with somebody 
who is in a place of despair. They are not always pleasant to be around. It is not always the case that you will feel great sympathy for the person who is in despair and feeling horrible things, undergoing terrible things. There are times in which, to Bildad's credit, you're going to feel what's called compassion fatigue. For seven days now, Bildad has sat there in the dirt, mourning with his friend Job. Before we point our judgmental finger at his exasperation in the second verse, we can recognize that this is hard. It is hard to listen to someone say, I have no hope, it's over, it sucks, life hurts, etc., and so forth. It is difficult to stay steadfast with somebody holding compassion for them. Ask any hospice nurse what compassion fatigue feels like and they can tell you exactly how awful it can be. But Bildad, still, that's not his error. His error comes from the third and fourth verses. We will spend some time there. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? The answer to that is no. God is infinitely just. God does not twist justice. He cannot be bribed. He will not show personal favoritism where one man gets away with sin while another man gets punished for it. God is just. Bildad is correct to say this. But in verse 4, If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Your children died, Job. Clearly then, if the case was that they had sinned, this is their just deserts. They deserved it, my friend. Is that correct? No. In fact, it is incorrect on many levels. First and foremost, we as the readers can look back at Job chapter 1 and we can say, Job was trying to make sure his children were not guilty before God of any sins. In verse 4 of Job chapter 1, it says, His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So Job not only acts as a good father, he acts as a good patriarch, being the high priest of his family. He knows very, very well that while all of us are sinners, he was consecrating his children and offering sacrifices for them. Imagine going to confession every single day and hearing absolution pronounced over any sins you had committed. That is Job's children. That is what they experienced day in and day out until the day of their death. But on another level, Bildad is incorrect. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. 
we understand quite succinctly again from the first chapter that God did not kill Job's children. Who did? While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck them down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 18, While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. This occurs when God gives Satan permission to do as he will. Satan is the one directly responsible for this. Now, yes, the book of Job does say that this is a disaster visited upon Job by God, and we must wrestle with this. But it is not on account of Job's children's sins that his children died. It is the wager between God and the devil which resulted in the death of Job's children. Third, and most importantly, may I add, we understand, as Christians who read the Holy Scriptures, that death entered into the world because of sin. On account of sin, you and me and anybody else currently alive, unless our Lord Jesus comes back before then, we will experience death. We will shed our mortal coils and be with the Lord until the resurrection. This phenomenon enters into the world on account of sin. Does that mean that every single time a human being dies, that it is on account of their sin, a particular sin that God is punishing them. Job's children, dying on account of the cosmic wager that has happened in the first and second chapters, they are li living, hopefully, in eternity. They are living proof that it is wrong to say that. Just as when the apostles approach our Lord Christ, with the blind man in the Gospel of John, and they say, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, Neither. This is for the glory of God. He has a specific purpose for that blind man's suffering. Your death can have a purpose other than punishment for sins. As Christians, and if we are going to do accurate theology, we must understand that death is a phenomenon. It is a punishment that we experience the phenomenon of death, but your death itself may have a purpose that is orthogonal or entirely unrelated to your sins. Bear this in mind, because the next time you pray a litany, what do we ask for? When it is time to depart from this earth, we ask for a blessed death. Something that serves God's purposes. Something that we don't experience it as we are brought to the throne room of God with all the other saints. You experience death ultimately because of your sins, but there are other purposes which your death may fulfill. It is not always just God saying, oh yes, 
Billy stole a, an ice cream bar when he was five years old, and it's time to pay the piper. It is a silly notion that every single death is specifically a punishment like unto that of King Saul, who, for his sin of consulting a witch, for his persecution of the priests that he had slaughtered at the hands of Doeg, for all of the other times that he had sinned in chasing King, the soon-to-be King David, and tried to murder him, yes, God kills King Saul. However, in the case of Job's children, in the case of St. Stephen, in the case of any martyr slaughtered by the enemies that we have, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the purpose of their death was not God saying, time to pony up what you owe me on account of one or more particular sins. You might notice in the fourth verse, Bildad does throw out that subjunctive if. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. But as we read further into the passage, he doesn't mean if. He means this is what happened to Job. We note in verse 5, if you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, the assumption being, his presupposition being that Job sinned, if you are pure and upright, sounding sarcastic now, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your ha rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Ask for mercy, Job. If you're so pure, then why don't you just ask for God's mercy and uh, he's just, right? He'll make it right. But... But, inquire of bygone ages. Bildad speaks as an arrogant determinist. He is a fatalist that says all of this is an operation of God's sovereignty on the world. Him being the judge over all things. And if somebody is bad, they get punished with death. If they are good, they are blessed forever. And, of course, God is the one who decides all of that. It was fated to be, Joan. There's no other choice, no other option. So consider what the fathers have searched out, he says in the 8th verse, continuing on, We are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? Why don't you consider the holy tradition, Job? Why don't you consider the past 2,000 years of tradition that believers have had? Why don't you consult the church fathers? I almost hear a Roman Catholic voice speaking to me in this. That is not to say there isn't value in tradition or that there isn't value in the church fathers. But here he is saying, listen, you don't know what you're talking about. Consult all those other guys that knew what they were talking about, and they're going to back me up. For that matter, Job, I almost want to see if he would say, the psalmist in Psalm 1 would back me up. Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. 
Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. What do we read in Psalm 1? One of the most excellent, exquisite statements of law in all of Holy Scripture. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. In verse 3 of Psalm 1, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Using a plant analogy that almost tempts us to wonder if the psalmist was thinking about what Bildad says here in the 8th chapter. He says, you got to get close to God. you got to go back to the waters of the source of salvation here. So you can be watered. So you can be restored. Why don't you do that? After all, if you don't, you're going to be like those who forget God, and your hope shall perish. His confidence is severed, verse 14, and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. Now that's interesting. He is a lush plant before the sun, and his shoots spread over his garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon it a house of stones. Where have we, Christians, heard that before? Somebody who forgets God, perhaps in the face of suffering, somebody who forgets God as they are in a stony path, where maybe at first they rejoice at what they hear, but the sun beats down on them and they die. Wait, let's go to Matthew chapter 13 for a moment. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it. Matthew 13, starting in verse 3, he told them, our Savior told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. I wonder, and I believe it is worth it to ask, was our Lord Christ speaking the parable of the sower precisely because his audience had read the book of Job and would be familiar with Bildad saying, listen, you don't want to be like the man who abandons God at the face of pain and persecution. You would be like a shallowly planted seed among the stones, which is beaten down and destroyed before the sun. Bildad speaks here quite truthfully. He speaks with the voice of the law saying, Look, if you're by the waters, you know you are going to prosper. But if you run away, if you decide to forget God, and if you become a godless man, you are going to perish. In verse 18, if he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have never seen you. Where else have we heard a statement a little close to that? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And the Son of Man will say, Oh, get away from me, for I never knew you. 
I've never even seen you. Bildad, though we can say in the fourth verse, he makes a critical, astounding error. Here he is speaking something so profound that even our Lord Christ seems to be referring to it. In the psalmist in Psalm 1, seems to be hearkening it back. Remember, Job very well could be the first book of the Bible ever written, and it speaks with this kind of profundity that you see it pouring forth into the other pages of Holy Scripture. Behold, this is the joy of his way. And out of the soil, others will spring. The kingdom of God is taken to, from you and given to others. Verse 20, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Job, I'm sure that though I've asked you to seek God's mercy here, I bet you you're going to make it out of this with greater joy. I almost wonder if Bildad's tone shifted to a more comforting tone. He realized that he had been a little hard on Job at this point, And he says, listen, but I know you're going to do the right thing. I know you're going to go ahead and... Confess whatever it is that you did that was this bad, and God will restore you. Irony of ironies, though Job chapter 1 says that Job was blameless, and though Job does later on confess to his rash speaking and speaking from ignorance, God does restore him in many manifold ways beyond what he had at the first. But it is not, because Bildad was correct. That tiny little error that he makes, that fatalism, that addition, him relying on the traditions of his elders to tell him, this is what the law says. And then he adds his reason, saying, this is proof positive that this is what your children did. Maybe this is wrath on them. Even though he makes that error, that poisons the rest of the discourse, no matter how accurate the rest of his words are. And from then on, we get set up for when God tells him, you have not spoken right about me. Next week, we will look at Job's steadfast response to Bildad in his words. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.